dropped the ball. This much is certain when it comes to the Silicon Valley bank debacle, the ball was dropped. And the question boils down to what exactly happened and what we can learn from it. On this special episode of Bankadelic, Chris Aliota of Quantalytics walks us through his analysis behind the bank failure. From the studios of Karma Productions Worldwide in Chicago, this is Lou Carlozo's Bankadelic. Bankadelic, the colorful side of finance, where we supply expert views, riff on the news, innovate and investigate actionable insights, unscripted banking with a caffeine kick. I'm your host, Lou Carlozo, inviting you to sit back, grab a cuppa, kick up your feet. Here we go. Thanks for tuning into Bankadelic. And the last time I did something like this was when Bankadelic went to Money 2020 in Las Vegas, where we taped episodes on the fly and put them on the air right away. I felt the need to do that with this particular topic because it has rushed to the top of the news cycle, not just the banking news cycle, but the news cycle worldwide. And we are really at an inflection point to check out what is happening with the industry following the fallout from Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. And now, as of this morning, Credit Suisse. So to do that, we have Chris Aliota, an old friend of Bankadelic, and we're happy to have him here today. Chris is the president and CEO of Quantalytics. That is a Birmingham, Alabama-based startup specializing in market data and analytics and loan management software. I have to say this, Chris is definitely someone who is quite the expert given his long banking career in the areas that he's covered, interest rate risk, loan valuation, market risk, and CCAR, which is something they watch very closely at the Federal Reserve. He has a view into what happened at Silicon Valley Bank, unlike anyone I know. And all of this, just a brief entree into why we have Chris here today. Welcome to Bankadelic. Thanks, Lou. I'm happy to be back. You live, breathe, and eat so much of this stuff going back over the course of your entire career. Yeah. You know, thank you for, again, for having me on. You know, I think the funny thing is, is I never thought I would have to talk about this topic uh, in the capacity that we're talking about it today. And there's really a lot to unpack that I think a lot of people need to know, uh, especially as we start to talk about the consequences of what's going on. Uh, as well as what potentially could happen here in the future. Let's start with something that I know you can provide our audience. I'm going to be a little grumpy here. What went wrong at Silicon Valley Bank and why it was in the position it was in? So take us through that as you see it. Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting case here because we've got a number of things going on. And primarily what we've seen here is a failure in really two of the big risk pillars, which is one, interest rate risk management, and then also liquidity risk management as well. I mean, what that means to the listeners is that, you know, as bankers, we're subject to a number of risks that our balance sheets and our banks are exposed to. And I can go through all of them, you know, interest rate risk, credit risk, operational risk, uh, market risk, liquidity risk. So there's a lot of different facets to running a bank. But when you really boil it down, interest rate risk and credit risk 
as well as market rates to a certain extent, are the largest of the three, are the ones that we actively think about and manage. And that's not to say that the other ones aren't important, but they're kind of like the big three. So to see a failure resulting from interest rate risk, it's a little funny because you know, they say history repeats itself or it certainly rhymes. This is one of the cases where it is sure as heck rhyming. And for those who aren't familiar with what I'm referring to, back in the 80s, we had the SNL crisis, which was largely driven by interest rates changing. So you had Paul Volcker uh, running the Federal Reserve Bank. We, I believe, and again, I was, <laughs> I'm going to date myself, I guess, in a positive way. I think I was still like under the age of 10 in the 80s. Uh, so I, I remember this vaguely, but essentially what ended up happening is with the decoupling of uh, pegging to the dollar, we uh, had to start to allow interest rates to move. And that fundamentally changed how banks operated. And in its fallout, we had a number of banks go under. And so what does that mean? For a bank to go under due to interest rate risk, it means that they had a mismatch between the amount of money that they received through what they were lending at, generally referred to as their interest rate, and the money that they were using to fund that source of income. So we talk about it from an asset and liability perspective. So for most of our listeners, you should be familiar with the concept that customer deposits fund bank loans. And typically, you know, banks will lend at a, let's just say in this case, a rate of, we'll say 300 basis points, which is 3%. We'll say they make a loan at 3%. And in today's ultra low interest rate environment, perhaps they're paying their depositors nothing. We'll just get, we'll keep it really simple. So what happens is the bank makes about 3% spread. If you think about it in unlevered terms, right off the bat. So that's almost like a 3% return. Well, in banking, there are certain capital requirements that we're required to follow when we lend to various types of organizations, institutions, industries. So in some cases, it may be that we can, for every dollar we lend, $1 of that has to be from investment capital that was put into the bank. So uh, in that case, that would be analogous to a 10 to 1 leverage ratio, which means that for everything we make in terms of return, in this case, our earlier example was 3%, you can multiply that by 10 and you get about a 30% return on equity. And so that's how banks make their money. It's through levered borrowing, essentially, and making pretty much a spread off of what they are paying their depositors and receiving from customers themselves. So this is where I understand that interest rate movement comes into play. When interest rates do move, and we often hear about the Fed changing interest rates, one of the things that most people need to understand is when the Fed changes interest rates, what they're really doing is they're controlling what we call the short-term interest rate. So we have what is called a yield curve. And uh, the yield curve is basically different interest rates at different maturities. So if you were to say to someone, and there's a great example I heard of this, if you were to take a bunch of people and you say, hey, in one day, if you lend me a dollar, what would it be that you'd want to receive back? And through the consensus of talking to multiple people, you'd be able to arrive at roughly an interest rate that would be on average what people would accept. So let's just say overnight, might be in this example 1%. That's pretty high, but I'm just going to use it, you know, for the sake of describing what a yield curve is. Go to the same people, same pool of people and say, "Okay, 10 years from now, what would be the required rate or interest rate that you would want in terms of being able to lend to me?" So in other words, if I said 10 years from now you give me a dollar, I'll give it back to you. Well, what is it that you would want ultimately to make you whole? To make you say, "Okay, I'm fine with parting from that current resource and the utility of which 
but I need to be paid back at, at a higher interest rate later on. You might come back and say, well, it's five or 6%, you know? And so what happens is we get what we call a term structure of rates, which generally speaking in a normal yield curve, shorter term lending has a lower interest rate and longer term lending has a higher interest rate. And for the obvious reasons of opportunity costs. And there's a lot of math that kind of goes into this sometimes. And again, depending on the experience of our listeners here, there's components such as inflation and other economic events and things like that, that may get factored into how these interest rates are equilibrated or solved for with the broader market. So anyway, what happened with SVB though, is that the short-term rates went up and they went up substantially. So they went up by about 450 basis points, which is 4.5% within a single year. That was for 2022, which was really impressive. You know, the Fed got very tight on inflation and decided to, to fight it pretty heavily. So you're seeing 50 basis points, 75 basis point moves, which again, you know, in my career, I've only seen that going in the negative direction, in the down direction. And it's not to say that this is uncommon, the movements, this happens all the time. Uh, and it's one of the tools that the Fed has to help control inflation and economic growth. But the key thing here is that those short-term rates are tied to what banks typically will pay out in terms of deposits because that short-term rate is what the Fed will allow banks to borrow from them in the event that they need liquidity. So in other words, and we'll get to liquidity here in a minute and what I mean by that, it's their way of controlling essentially how levered banks can be in a certain regard. So long story short, what Silicon Valley Bank found themselves in was in an environment where deposit rates were going up and two, their borrowing rates are either remaining fixed. In this case, we'll explain a little bit more what I mean by that. And what they were starting to see was a compression in what was their net interest margin. Now, that is not what caused the failure of the banks, but it is a part of this. There is a key component to this because when interest rates go up in terms of deposits, it makes keeping and attracting deposits a lot harder. And that is what we call liquidity risk. Because again, you have to fund those assets with something. So why are the bonds a big deal? Well, at the surface, what Silicon Bank was doing wasn't all that bad. If you look at it, and I know a bunch of people are probably recoiling in their chair when they hear me say that, but hear me out here. If you look at it from a regulatory perspective, all their capital ratios look great. They were investing in what were considered to be AAA super secure bonds. A lot of their investments were in agency-backed securities. So there was an implicit and maybe an explicit guarantee in case of default. So from a credit perspective, if you were a regulator and you were looking at this, you were saying, okay, this could be all right. The problem is that when we get into market and interest rate risk, bonds have an inverse relationship in terms of value when it comes to interest rates. So as interest rates go up, bond prices go down. We can talk about that a little bit more, why that happens. But the bottom line is, as interest rates were going up, the value of these bonds that they held were going down. and on top of that, they were having deposit outflow, which meant that the money that they were using to fund the source of income, these bonds, was going away and they had to replace it. So you've got two options. You either go out and you raise more capital or you go and buy brokered CDs or you try to get deposits through any one of the liquidity sources you may have, like the FHLB banks, the Federal Reserve Bank, or any type of um, you know, interbank relationship that you may have to ultimately shore up your balance sheet to make sure that you don't have what we call an asset liability mismatch, Silicon Valley Bank couldn't do that fast enough. The outflow of deposits caused them to have to sell 
what are liquid, you know, easily sellable securities, but they had to sell them at a loss. So imagine that you gave me $100. I went out and lent $100. But when I lent that $100, in this case, I actually went out and bought a bond. And you come to me and say, hey, I need that $100 back. Well, that bond, if interest rates have moved, the value of that bond may only be worth 98 bucks. So mm. now I have to go sell a bond at $98 at a $2 loss. Well, I've got to find that $2 somewhere to give you your money. And so that's effectively at a high level what happened to Silicon Valley Bank. They had a massive amount of deposit outflow where they needed to figure out either how can we fund that. In this case, they couldn't get the liquidity that they needed. So they had to go and sell bonds and they sold those bonds at a loss. Well, you may say, well, where does that loss come from? Well, it comes from the investor capital that comes in. And when those losses exceed the capital that the bank has, that's when we basically say that the bank has failed. The minute that those capital ratios fall below the minimum requirements, the bank is considered in a state of failure. That's when the Fed Reserve or any of the regulatory institutions will step in and they'll take receivership of the bank. You know, in this case, uh, we saw it with Silicon Valley Bank, and now they're attempting to do a bailout, which, you know, some people have some very opinionated thoughts on. Yeah, absolutely. So let me ask you, what's your opinion? You know, it's interesting because I'll be honest with you, Lou, I don't really know much about what they're proposing as far as the, how the bailout is going to be structured and how things are going to happen there. You know, I was able to see bank bailouts occur in the financial crisis of 2007, 2008, 2009. It was kind of a big span there. And so there were various different entities that got some really great deals out of that. My perspective is this, is that I think that the messaging that came out of the government, out of the regulators, should have been really focused around making sure that people felt safe, that their deposits weren't going to disappear. It's very nuanced. There's a lot of things that are changing here. But if the Fed had come out and just said, hey, flat out, we're going to guarantee every deposit, even those that are uninsured, right now with respect to this bank, I think a lot of the confusion, I think a lot of the frustration and fear that we're seeing would have been greatly diminished and reduced. So it's possible then that there could be additional fallout here in the States with this, or that this is a big time wake up call. Where do you see things headed? SVB should not have happened. And I say that because they failed in the most elemental aspect of risk management, which is interest rate risk management. I mean, it is, <laughs> I'm at a loss of words here because I talked to other balance sheet managers and ALM managers for top 30 banks. SVB would have been considered a top 30 bank. You know, they had, I think, roughly $150 billion to $200 billion in assets. They were a sizable organization. You can't sneeze at a big bank like that without a regulator asking you why you did it. Furthermore, just looking at their risk tolerances and exposures, they should have seen that they had a tremendous amount of interest rate risk. You know, I was looking at their, their 10K from 2021 and then the 10Q from 2022. And the reason I went back is because I wanted to say, okay, where was their balance sheet at the beginning of the cycle, which would have been the beginning of 2022, the interest rate movement cycle, and how could that have played out? And again, what I saw there, especially within their economic value of equity shocks, was that there was a significant amount of risk to rising interest rates. And they did their shocks in parallel of 200 basis points. When we looked at their period end date of December 31st, 2021, which means going into the beginning of 2022, if you looked at their economic value of equity shock here, and this is an up 200, meaning that interest rates would have to move up 2%. And there's a lot of assumptions that go into this that Again, I could spend hours talking about the math and what we do and why it may not always be the perfect measure. 
But we can just see with a 2% increase, the economic value of this company, of this bank, would decrease by $5 billion in value. Now, again, this is going to happen. This isn't uncommon. But again, that's a pretty sizable move. Now, consider that within 2022, interest rates went up by 450 basis points. That's a near doubling, right? You have to look at these numbers within context. There's a lot of different moving pieces. There's certainly a lot of assumptions that are being made. So they're not perfect estimates. But you can see that the economic value of the equity for the bank changed by negative 27% in their uprate movements. So typically, you know, banks will have risk limits, will have risk policies. I mean, that's a pretty, pretty heavy movement. And again, it's questionable as to why the regulators would allow for that level of sensitivity to exist. I think what I've heard from most of my peers and former peers is, you know, there's no condition in which this should have been allowed because I was trying to play devil's advocate as best as I could. I was saying, well, you know, let's look at it from a credit perspective. You know, a lot of the focus in the last couple of years has really been on capital and liquidity. And again, they were investing in these highly liquid, super safe bonds. You know, is it possible that maybe the regulators just got caught up in this old mindset and just didn't see it? And the answer I kept getting was, no, there's no way that the regulators should have missed this. And this is probably the most, the biggest takeaway here is that there's a question about regulatory capture going on here. And the fact that you've got this very large institution that should have significant state and federal oversight, the fact that both those entities miss this is very, very, how can I put it, very suspect. And so it's, again, I'm not going to get into the politics of things. I don't want to go there, but this isn't right. This isn't right. And and here's the response we're going to get. (laughs) And I'm probably going to draw a lot of heat for this, but I'm going to say it. You know, the regulators are going to overreact to this. I already know this because they've already reached out to a number of the top 20 banks and asked them for interest rate information over the weekend. And what they're going to do is they're going to try to tighten up and they're going to say, well, this was a lack of regulation and we need more governance. This is not that instance. We have laws, we have rules, we have governance. This isn't a case of needing more governance. This is a case of the regulators needing to follow their own rules and understanding (laughs) what it is they're doing. Someone dropped the ball. That is what happened here. Someone dropped the ball as a regulatory institution or or as an agency. And we've got to ask ourselves the question, why? Why did that happen? We've already got enough regulation. In this particular area, interest rate risk, we don't need more. Now, I say that, and there are things that would be good to see, though. But, you know, that's a conversation maybe for a different day. I don't know if a lot of the listeners are going to really want to talk about that. But, you know, we talk about stress testing portfolios. I think it would be better to see more interest rate risk metrics within the 10Qs and 10Ks. Some banks disclose a lot. Other banks disclose very little information on that. There's a lot of assumptions that go into these things. So, you know, I can understand why some banks are more guarded than others. Again, I think it's a very useful measure. And I think it really shows people, or at least investors, what type of risk that they can be exposed to or what could potentially happen to these entities that they're investing in. That is a fantastic analysis all the way around. Some very good points, some points I frankly haven't heard anywhere else. As we wrap things up, I'm just wondering going forward, what do you think are some of the lessons we need to take out of this? You've covered the regulator issue to an extent. We've covered some of the interest rate mismatching going on. What do you think can be learned from all this? Uh, Well, you know, 
from this debacle, I don't know if there's much to be learned from it, to be honest with you, because I see it as a failure, a regulatory failure. That may be an unpopular opinion, but that's what I think it is. If the regulators were following their own guidance and typically what they look at, they're following their own rules that this would have been allowed. So I think this is a lesson for not the banks, but more the regulators. And, you know, I say that and people will say, well, wait a minute, these guys made an active decision to reach for yield, to be aggressive, to really put their bank in a bad spot. I would agree with that, but I'd also say that, you know, where were the regulators in all this? This should have never happened. I mean, their balance sheet was positioned this way for a long time and only continued that way. And so it wasn't like this happened overnight. This is a story that has been evolving for a long time that should have been caught a long time ago. There's not much I can say there. Now, as far as taking other lessons from this, I think a lot of the community banks, and we'll speak about the community banks, have to understand that, you know, your deposits aren't promised to you. They can go out the door at any minute. So having a really good understanding of what that might look like if those deposits go out the door, as well as having a good understanding of how to use your interest rate risk measurements and analyses. How can you use that to protect your bank from this type of, we'll call it debacle from occurring is important. And I think a lot of banks became lax in their understanding of interest rate risk because we've had such low interest rates that it's easy for us to forget what it's like to be in an environment where rates are moving. <laughs> it's an interesting world we live in, Lou. It really is. <laughs> you know, I could talk about yield curve shapes. I could talk about uh, how to strategize around these things and the different risks that exist. But I think that the average listener, if they had to take something away from this would be something as simple as, you know, look, just make sure that where you're banking, that one, if you feel like you've got exposure beyond the FDIC limits, go and talk to your bankers and see if there's a way to get additional insurance or ways to make sure that your accounts can be protected. If you really do feel like there's a lot of exposure to a single bank, look elsewhere to move your money. I wouldn't move all my money out, but I would certainly try to diversify the banks that I was with, maybe go with some of the bigger banks, go with some of the smaller banks. I think that's a really good way. And as a bank, the advice I would give is, you know, look, think about your funding sources. Think about where you can pull on capital or liquidity in events like this, where there's a run, if you will, on the banks. Also think about where you're investing your money. Don't get greedy for yield. That is something that SVB what, did. They went out and they bought long-term dated bonds. Those are the most sensitive to changes in interest rates. So meaning that as rates go up, those bonds, their prices are going to be impacted more than shorter term bonds would be. Because again, it's changing the expectation of what the desired outcome is or the desired rate of return. So long dated bonds is not where you want to be putting your money, especially when you know that interest rates are going to be moving up. That was probably one of the worst ideas that they could come up with. The other thing too, is if you are going to do that, consider hedging your portfolio. I think a lot of banks are worried about using derivatives just because there's a negative connotation to it. And there's a lot of accounting rules here that make it difficult to do, like ASCA 20, I believe, which is fair value reporting for uh, derivative instruments. But if you're going to take duration, consider, and duration meaning length of bonds and actually risk, interest rate risk, you're going to want to think about offsetting that. And they should have had a risk committee or a risk group that looked at this and said, hey, we have a lot of exposure to long-term rates. What we should be doing is either getting rid of these securities and buying shorter term ones, or we should be hedging them. And that did not happen. 
Outstanding. Chris, really want to thank you on such short notice for letting us take a big chunk of your time here to help us understand what happened at Silicon Valley Bank and what it means for the industry. We hope to get you back on the podcast soon to talk about loan management software and all the exciting things going on at Quantalytics. Thank you again. All right. Thanks, Lou. Appreciate it. Chris Aliota is president and CEO of Quantalytics. They're based in Birmingham, Alabama. Be sure to look for Chris on LinkedIn and be sure to stay tuned to Bankadelic for more special episodes, given whatever the fallout on the banking industry may be. Bankadelic. Sponsored by the William Mills Agency. For close to 40 years, the William Mills Agency has served hundreds of companies that provide a wide range of products and services in the banking, payments, mortgage, credit union, and related markets. The William Mills Agency is the largest provider of PR and marketing services for companies that market to the financial industry. For more information, visit williammills.com. Have you thought about how you'll gain the upper hand in your search for stellar talent? Banker Hire leverages a niche industry with uncommon insight. They're committed to finding you qualified commercial and community banking, lending, compliance, HR, retail, and wealth talent. Banker Hire prides itself on listening and solving problems. Their approach is 100% hands-on and heads-up, giving you what you need to make smart, actionable decisions. For more information, visit BankerHire.com. Frantic Bank. Yes, the bank where we do things the old-fashioned way, just like the Medici's, just like all of those people who were hoarding treasures during the Middle Ages while people starved and rotted in the fields. Let's introduce you to Frantic Bank's four values. Value number one, make money. Value number two, make even more money. Value number three, make even more money. And value number four, make astronomical, unbelievable, atmospherically incomprehensible amount of money. Sound insane? Absolutely it is, because there's nothing like rolling in the dough and rolling in the dough some more when you are at Frantic Bank. Ready? Tell them about our values, team. Make money. Make even more money. Make even more money. More money. More money. Thanks for tuning in to Bankadelic. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault. I'm Lou Carlozo. You can catch me on LinkedIn and someday on my Vaudeville YouTube channel, Rink-a-dink-dink-din. Until next time, so long. Bankadelic is a production of NMD+, London, Chicago, and Austin, Texas.